chapter 1, the focus of our study this morning, Daniel chapter 1. We looked at the overall theme of the book last week that God's kingdom cannot fall, cannot fail, and therefore we must serve Him. We must be faithful to Him in a faithless culture. If this world were our home, if this world were our final home, then it might not be so hard to live here. We would simply assimilate to the culture and allow ourselves to become what the culture wants us to be because this is part of who we are. But we are aliens in many ways. We are not of this world. We are strangers or pilgrims, maybe a better way to think about it. We are only passing through. And we have another home that is for a thousand years we will come back to this place, but after that we're going to have a new earth, a new heaven. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom that will eventually come to earth. And that means that we cannot, while we live in this home that is not ours, we cannot allow the culture to squeeze us into its mold. And the difficulty for us, I think, when it comes to culture is where do we draw the line? And Daniel is a story about a young man and actually four young men who have to figure out how to be faithful in a faithless culture. And they have to figure out how to draw the line, where to draw the line, when to draw the line. And we will learn much from their example if we, uh, if we think carefully about it this morning. So let, let me begin, begin reading in Daniel chapter 1. And I'll begin with verse 3. This is the Word of God. Then the king... Nebuchadnezzar ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from wine the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has appointed your your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food 
and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted him, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel, Daniel continued until the first year of Cyprus, uh, Cyrus, excuse me, the king. We live in a faithless culture, and our responsibility as believers is to be faithful despite what our culture is. We must be faithful in a faithless culture. We see two main ideas in this passage. First, if we're going to live faithfully in a faithless culture, we must know God's faithfulness. If we're going to live faithfully in a faithless culture, we must know God's faithfulness. Verses 1-4. through The setting of this book, as I mentioned briefly last week, is that God had promised, the larger setting that is, God had promised to Judah that if they did not obey Him, that He would judge them by means of the nations, the wicked nations, the pagan nations. Listen to Leviticus 26, which is obviously following the Exodus prior to the time that they had entered into the Promised Land, long before this captivity. Leviticus 26, 27 through 33. Yet in spite of this, you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me. Then uh, if you do this, I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. And then in verse 33, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Nearly 1,000 years earlier than the events that we just read about here in Daniel, God had promised to Israel, to Judah, that if they were unfaithful to Him, then they will have broken the covenant. They would have broken the covenant with Him and therefore He would scatter them. He would send them away from their promised land, that they would be taken out as captives and their cities would become waste. This becomes more of a reality when we come to King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah had shown Babylon his treasures. He had invited them in a hundred years before the events of Daniel and the Lord promised that all of those treasures that that they had seen would be taken from him including some of his descendants. And if you remember that story from Isaiah 39 or 2 Kings 20, same story, Hezekiah praises God that it doesn't happen during his lifetime. Uh, He's thankful that it doesn't happen to him. And yet, uh, God is saying something bigger is going to happen to your people and you should be concerned. And what God had predicted 1,000 years earlier in Leviticus and 100 years earlier to King Hezekiah came to pass. It, acts, it, it, it took place exactly as God had, had, uh, had said it would. 
Israel disobeyed and God scattered them. It came in the form of three separate deportations, part of the same, that is, removal from their city. The first one happens here in 605 B.C. with Daniel and his three friends where the king gathers in some of the best of Israel, some of the best of Judah, and brings them into his court and, and teaches them and, and tries to, to uh, change them into one of his own. And uh, that's what's taking place here in the book of Daniel. The second deportation happens about eight years later in 597 B.C. And it included more than just a few of their choice young people, but now it's going to include in the second deportation King Jehoiakim, and 10,000 other Jews. And uh, that would be as a result of their obstinance, that is, Judah's obstinance to Babylon's rule. And then finally in 586 B.C., the final deportation was when King Nebuchadnezzar came in and just destroyed the whole place, took, took everything from the temple and, um, and left the city to be a waste. Look at verse 1, because King Nebuchadnezzar thinks of this victory that he has here, this first deportation, was his victory. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And we're going to see as we continue studying through the book that it is Nebuchadnezzar who thinks he was the one who brought about all this good for himself. But notice what verse 2 teaches us. The Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand. So Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's the one who won the victory. God's saying, no, I'm the one who gave them into your hands. This deportation was actually the beginning of God's judgment on Judah. This is what God had promised. If you are not faithful to me, then you are going to be judged by the nations. Daniel and his three friends were among the Jews of this first phase of, being, uh, of going into captivity, of this exile, as we call it. They're taken over to Babylon and apparently they're chosen, chosen because verse 3 tells us that they're of nobility. That they, have, uh, that they have wealthy families apparently and most likely probably royal families. That uh, Josephus believes that he came from the from uh, king... I uh, can't think of the king now, but I was going to say Hezekiah, but that's not it. Um, Zedekiah, I think is the name. I think that Daniel is actually from King Zedekiah. And uh, notice what King Nebuchadnezzar was looking for in verse 4. Not only were they noble and of royal family, verse 4, they were youths, that are young people in whom was no defect. Good looking, showing intelligence in every branch and so on. The word here for youths in whom uh, there was no defect, youths that you see constantly throughout this text, is a, comes from a Hebrew word that means boy or teenage boy. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 that's translated there as boy child. When Eve gives birth to Cain, she says, Thank you, God, I have gotten a boy child. Now, Daniel and his three friends are not boys, I would suggest, because they have to show skill and wisdom, and so most likely they're teenage boys. But no, for, for most likely... I would say, um, I, I would believe that they are not men by any stretch of the imagination. They're probably young teenagers. And, and um, what we're going to, to see from this is that, that uh, God is going to use these young people and actually 
train them, mature them, and Daniel's going to be here for the remainder of his life. In the ancient Near East, particularly in, in uh, Persia, what, what the nation would do is they would start to train young boys at the age, age of 15. They would allow them to mature, and then at the age of 15, that's when they really wanted to enculturate them and train them and advance them. And so very likely the Babylonians were using the same thing. That's why most scholars believe that Daniel and his three friends were around the age of 15. So if we're going to be faithful in a faithless culture, we need to recognize God's faithfulness. We need to know God's faithfulness. So that gives us kind of a background for it. But what we need to recognize is that God was actually judging His people. And what we need to know is, is can God be faithful to us even while He's judging us? Even while we're experiencing, let's put it this way, while we're experiencing the consequences of our own sin. And the truth is that God is faithful to us even when we are experiencing the consequences of our sin. Isaiah 1 Chapters 1 through 39 are chapters of judgment. And it's it, some some cases very hard to read all of the promises that God's bringing on the people of Judah for disobeying Him and, and the promises of judgment. And we're impressed with the clear reality that Judah will be taken into captivity from those chapters in Isaiah. And so what the Jews might think as they're hearing this from the prophet Isaiah is that Maybe God's not in control. But Isaiah's prophecy doesn't end at chapter 39. It continues on in chapters 40 through 66 and shows the great hope of God's people. And even though his preaching, that is Isaiah's preaching, was initially rejected and received with much skepticism, the captives of of Judah would eventually listen to his preaching long after Isaiah was alive and they would receive comfort from it. I think Daniel would lean on the book of Isaiah even as he reflects on God's mercy even in experiencing the consequences of the nation's sins. These captives would remember that God was powerful to deliver and that He is the God of the universe. That's what Isaiah is about. And that He would not abandon them, but would rather restore them. So God is saying, listen... Verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1, I am the one who is sending you into judgment as a result of the promise that I had made to you for disobeying me. And yet, even though I'm sending you in there, will I not restore you? And that's what they need to be thinking about in a larger context. So if we're going to be faithful in a faithless culture like Daniel and his three friends are, then we need to know God's faithfulness. Secondly, if we're going to live faithfully in a faithless culture... We must resist assimilation to the culture. We must resist assimilation to the culture. That's found in the second part of verse 4 all the way through verse 21. We must resist assimilation to the culture. Do you realize that the world is trying to squeeze you into its mold? That's what we see here in the second part of verse 4 through verse 7. King Nebuchadnezzar recognizes something special about these four young boys. And, and the king wants them to serve him. And he wants to serve them and to serve his purposes in three ways. First, in educational indoctrination. Look at verse 4, middle of the verse. It says, Endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, this is what they're like, and who had abilities to, uh, for serving in the king's court, 
and he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So he takes his chief of, chief of officials, Ashpenaz, and he says, you need to train them, indoctrinate them in our way of living, in the Babylonian way of life. And so we're going to teach them everything about our literature, our language, our history, our gods. And that's what we find happening here in verse 5, the second part of the verse, and he appointed that they should be educated three years, and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So there's this indoctrination going on for three years, a focused study on Babylonian culture, and that was one of the ways that they were going to assimilate Daniel and his three friends into the culture. The second way he's going to, to try to assimilate them into the culture was through the dietary provisions. Verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from wine which he drank. We're going to see how they resist those things here in the verses ahead. And then the third way that King Nebuchadnezzar tried to assimilate them was through identification with them. That is, identification with the Babylonians. Verses 6 and 7. Notice what he does to them. He changes their name. Verse 6, they are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he changes their names to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, what you need to know about that is that, that, that names in the ancient Near East mean a lot more than names tend to mean in our culture. Now, some people still take a lot of meaning in, in names. My parents named my youngest sister Joy uh, because of the great joy that they received from, from her. They, they had become Christians uh, just, just a few years earlier and and so names do have meaning in, in our culture, but not nearly as much meaning as in the ancient Near East. These names are important for us to understand. Daniel's name was changed from meaning God is my judge to meaning, O wife of Bel, this false god, protect the king, Belteshazzar. From, from God being his authority to this false god. He's got a new name now. Hananiah's name was changed from meaning God is gracious to at the command of the moon god, Shadrach. Mishael's name was changed from meaning who is like our God to meaning who is like Aku, a false god, Meshach. That's what Meshach means. Azariah's name was changed from meaning God is a helper to his new name, which means servant of Nebo, the shining one, Abednego. You see, what, what, what uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do was he's trying to show them a change in authority. You used to serve your country and your God, but now you serve my country and my God. Okay? You, you're going to do away with all that, including your names, and now you have new names that mean what we want them to mean. You are now under my rule and under the rule of our gods. The world is trying to squeeze you into its mold, but we must be faithful to God. Verses 8-13, through 13, we must be faithful to God. We must be faithful to God despite the grave consequences. We must be faithful to God despite the grave consequences. The text of Daniel doesn't tell us why the king's meat would be defiled, or, uh, but, but we do know from the law of Moses that, that the Jews were not supposed to eat food that had been devoted to idols. They were not supposed to eat certain types of food, by the way, but they were not supposed to eat 
food that was devoted to idols as well. Notice verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So there's something about that food that would have defiled Daniel as a young, obedient Jewish boy that is obedient to God. Now, this has nothing to do with vegetarianism, that he shouldn't eat the king's meat, you know, instead eat vegetables. So this is our proof text for vegetarianism. That's not the point. Remember, uh, God commends meat eaters in Genesis chapter 9, and Jesus was a meat eater. He fed the 5,000 with fish and certainly ate fish after his resurrection, even with the disciples. Okay? But the point here is, rather, that this meat was somehow defiled. In some way, this food was defiled. That, that certainly it could have been unclean, simply maybe it was just pork, and he couldn't eat it in that way, or it could have been given to idols. Here, Daniel makes a choice on behalf of the other three men, young men, that they were not going to do this. We're not going to drink this wine. We're not going to, to eat this meat. Now, now, what I want you to consider now is, is the seriousness of this choice. This is not just like, you know, we don't really feel like eating that. You got anything else? That's not the idea here. What would have happened to these four boys if they were unwilling to eat his food? What would the king have done? Look at verse 10. We'll see. We'll get an indication of the answer. Here, Ashpenaz is saying, Listen, I'm afraid of my lord the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? So what could happen if they just don't eat his meat. Look at the end of the verse. Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. I think at the very least, if they failed in this little test that they did, then at, least, at the very least, Ashpenaz would have to give his head. He would be killed. And I think probably more likely is that not only Ashpenaz would be killed, but also each of these four boys for defying the king. Right? What happened at the in chapter three when the king ordered everyone to bow down to this this huge ninety foot idol? Right? What happened when three young boys didn't bow down? Right? The the king was ready to kill them, and so this king does not play around. He wants to make sure people know who is the authority. And so if you just say, well, you know, I don't really want to eat the king's meat. I, what I, what I want you to see here is that this took great resolve on the part of Daniel. That he couldn't just walk into the chief of the officials and say, hey, I don't really feel like it. And the reason that Daniel could have such great resolve in the middle of a circumstance that could have had serious consequences was because he was more concerned about God's, God's purposes. He was more concerned about God's desires. You see, Daniel was clear on what God had demanded of him. And he was not going to compromise. And so I think he set a critical example on behalf of the other three. Now, maybe they all four discussed it. I kind of picture it that Daniel's saying, listen, we're not doing this. And he takes the lead. And he, he finds a way out. But what would have happened if Daniel compromised there? What would have happened if Daniel said, you know, we are far away from home and it is the king and we could lose our lives if we don't do this. So let's just do this. How do you think the three friends might have responded at the, at the requirement to, to bow down to this idol of Nebuchadnezzar? 
You think they would have still bowed down? We don't know for sure, but but I tend to think that Daniel made a great example for th- these three young boys that would that would prove to be important. Again, Daniel's a young boy as well, but but would prove to be important later in their life. In our pursuit of faithfulness, we must make an attempt at doing so in a non-confrontational way. If we're going to if we're going to defy the authorities of our days, and I, I think that we need to do it in a non-confrontational way. And the reason I say that is because of verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. The reason, the reason that the New American Standard translators put in the word permission is because of the rest of the text. What happens? He actually asked permission. Notice what he says here in verse 10. Uh, well, he asks permission here in, in verse 9, knowing that he has favor. Um, and Daniel says, verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given. So what, what we see here is in Daniel's disposition, it's not one of demand or entitlement. That we are not of your people, we are of a different nation, and we can do as we please, and we're not, you're not going to stop us. Instead, Daniel seeks permission and he provides a solution. What Daniel did not do is take to the picket lines against King Nebuchadnezzar or Ashman as the chief of officials in order to embarrass this pagan government under which he lived. He didn't even rebel against the government effectively. He didn't complain about the the prohibited regulations that were being forced on him. Instead, he recognized the God-given authority of this pagan government that was over him and he requested permission for a different diet. You see, he took the way out of, of, of communication and diplomacy when it came to appealing to the government. It's more of an appeal than, than a rebellion. And... Um, and I think if they would have rejected him, obviously he would have had to take a stand. I'm not going to do this. I, I cannot eat the king's meat. That's what I'm telling you. I can't do it. But, but be first, the first thing he does is he asks for permission. And then he offers a solution. What that teaches us is that being obnoxious is not a requirement of faithfulness to God. We don't have to just be brash and, and, uh, and rude to people because we obey God and we don't obey men, that kind of thing. We recognize God's sovereign control over all things and we recognize that our government is put in our place for, for God's purposes and we will seek to honor them where honor is due. In verses 14 through 21, in our pursuit of faithfulness, we must leave the results to God. In our pursuit of faithfulness, we must leave the results to God. What would happen if they looked weaker than the other boys after the ten days? Well, I think Ashpenaz would have left them with the choice. Listen, you either eat the meat or you die because I'm not going to die on your behalf. Okay, so, so you need to make a choice. And if they still didn't do that, I'm sure that Ashpenaz would have reported them to the king as, as open rebels and would have, they would have had to give their life. And yet what we find is that they don't look weaker after the ten days, but instead they look stronger. And so the, the chief allows him to allows the four boys to continue. And then at the end of the three years, verses 17 to 20, they're presented before King Nebuchadnezzar. And notice what he finds in them. 
Verse 17, as for these four youths, these young boys, God gave them knowledge and intelligence and every branch of literature and wisdom. What were they studying for the last three? Remember, Babylonian literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. And out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's personal service. So they they passed this training session, this three-year training session, and made it into the king's personal service. But more than that, verse 20, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, so these are now his wise men. They're 18 years old. He found them, middle of verse 20, ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who are in all his realm. So God actually blesses the efforts, the the hard work of these three young men. And this should not be a surprise to us. People can can rise up to great places of service if they are skilled at their work. That's what Proverbs 22-29 says. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. That's Daniel. Daniel would prosper for another 67 years after this promotion. In verse 21, it tells us that he dies at the, uh, at, at the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus is not no longer a Babylonian king. This is after the Medes and the Persians have come in. Daniel would, will uh, be 85 years old by the time he, he passes away. So, we live in a faithless culture and we must be faithful to God within a faithless culture. And I would suggest to you several observations from our text this morning. First, we live in Babylon. We live in Babylon. Babylon is simply another way to express in the Bible all that opposes God. The Hebrew word Babylon is the same word that's translated in Genesis 11 for the city where the people tried to build a tower to reach the heavens so that they could boast about their abilities. They weren't trying to reach God. They were trying to be God. And the name of that city was Babel. It's the same word used in the rest of Scripture for Babylon. And, so, and, and then you go to the end of the Bible, Revelation 17 and 18, and you have this Babylon that's being led by the Antichrist. And it is a symbol of all that opposes God, right? And it eventually gets destroyed. In one day, in one hour, everything is destroyed. And, and people look on it and are just perplexed. And so from the beginning to the end of fallen man, we have this symbol of the city who opposes God called Babel or Babylon. And we see it again here in Daniel. And I would say that we see it in our world today. We live in a culture in our world that could be described as set up in opposition to God. And I think every culture in fallen human history could be described in the same way. And so I would say we live in Babylon. But we cannot be naive to the dangers of living in this culture that is opposed to God, and somehow think that it will not affect us. We need to recognize the danger and be resolved to take a stand, to draw a line in the sand, which we are unwilling to cross. So how do we know where to draw the line? How do we know when to stop when our culture is telling us to go? I would say this, knowing where to draw the line comes from having the mind of God. Knowing where to draw the line comes from the mind, from having the mind of God. Or as Paul calls it, 
the mind of Christ. We want to get everything subject in our lives to, to the thoughts of Christ. If you want to know where to draw the line, you need to be immersed in the Bible. If you want to think like God thinks, then you need to listen to Him speak. Here's how Paul teaches us in Romans 12:2: Do not be conformed to this world or don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't be conformed by it. But instead, be what? Be transformed. And how? By the renewing of your mind. If you want to avoid being assimilated into the culture, then you need to renew your mind. And that happens through the transformation process that comes when we immerse ourselves in the Word of God. So let me give you four principles for drawing the line between God and the world. How do we draw the line? Four principles. Number one, learning to draw the proper line begins at boot camp. Learning to draw the line begins at boot camp. Daniel and his three friends did not all of a sudden become godly when they were put into a pagan culture and in compromising situations. Do you know when they learned to draw a line? It was when they loved God back in Judah. And so don't be surprised if you lose the battle against sin in our culture if you don't take time to listen to God speak. And that means that, that as leaders okay, in our families, in this church, in this world, we need to train the younger generation to be unwilling to compromise with sin, even at a young age. Don't just overlook it. Oh, well, they're children. They'll understand one day. Daniel did not automatically grow a backbone when the attacks of sin were overwhelming and no other human will either. Rather, he he must have learned this from his time in Judah. And so don't think that a child or the children in our church are going to magically just get it someday. That it's going to click. You know, God is gracious and sometimes He does work that way. But in general... We need to train up a child in a way that he should go so that when he is old, he will not what? Depart from it. So learn to draw the proper lines in boot camp if you expect to win in the battle, if you expect to actually do the drawing of the line in the sand when it comes down to it. Number two, draw the line where the Bible specifically prohibits such a behavior. So draw the line where the Bible is clear. We could say it that way. Draw the line where the Bible is clear. Is there a clear prohibition against a certain kind of behavior? Then here's an easy one. Don't do it. Hey, don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. Is your boss telling you to fudge some numbers or to give some false deadlines to your clients? Well, what does the Bible say about that? It's pretty clear, right? Are your friends trying to get you to do something that the Bible prohibits? Is your flesh encouraging you to commit immorality? Well, draw a line. The Bible has clear statements about these things and many others. And so when the Bible is clear, it's very easy for us to say, no, we're not going to do that. The culture may expect us to do that because, hey, we're part of their culture. We're Americans. All Americans do that. No, we don't. We follow the Scriptures. That is our first allegiance, our primary allegiance. America is only our secondary allegiance. Number three, draw the line where the Bible clearly implies a prohibition against a certain behavior. So draw the line where the Bible is clear. And I would say, 
draw a line where the, the Bible gives principles. Okay, where the Bible gives principles. Has the Scripture implied a prohibition against a certain behavior? It's easy for us to draw the line where the Bible is clear. You know, when it comes to the main commandments of Scripture, we can say, okay, I, I know where to draw the line. But what about when the Bible doesn't speak to a specific issue on what we should do? Do this, don't do this. In that case, we need to draw the lines based on biblical principles. That doesn't mean, okay, that's all we have to do. Only where the Bible says clear, makes clear statements. Let me use an example that I hope everyone, everyone in here agrees with because it's in our church covenant. And that is, we should not drink alcohol. We should not drink alcohol at all. Okay, now is there an explicit command in Scripture against drinking alcohol? Can you think of one? No, there's not. In fact, many of the people that we look to as our models actually drank wine, right? But why don't we drink alcohol? There's no explicit prohibition, and actually we have examples of people doing it, so why do we not do it? And I would say to you it's because of a biblical principle that we believe in very strongly. We know that the beginning of drunkenness is drinking alcohol. And the Bible explicitly prohibits drunkenness. That's one of the reasons we don't do that. We also know that our drinking of alcohol could cause a stumbling block for a weaker Christian who might look at us and say, you know, they're drinking alcohol and so it must be okay for me to do it. And they may go farther than us and actually commit sin in doing so. And so we look at that and we say, listen, we have principles in the Scripture Bible's not clear, yes or no, but, but we take principles from Scripture and we make application. That's where, how we know where to draw the line. We, make, we, we learn from the principles of Scripture. Number, number four. Reassess your convictions so that you don't draw the line too far. Reassess your convictions so that you don't draw the line too far. Sometimes it's not that we're unwilling to draw a line. I think one of the dangers in our kind of Christian subculture is that we tend to draw the line too far. We draw the line for our kinds of uh, things that we enjoy, our preferences, and label them as being Christian. And you know who is really good at drawing lines? The Pharisees, weren't they? They had lots of lines they would not cross. And Jesus is saying, because you have all these traditions that you've piled up over the years, you've drawn this line, you can't even obey God. You're so far away from what God wants you to do because you've made all these rules for yourself. That can tend to be our problem in our culture. Just as an example, we may resolve not to listen to worldly music. In principle, a good thought, right? Not to listen to worldly music. And so we get frustrated when our neighbor or coworker or family member at a reunion plays their music for us to hear. And we rudely ask them to turn it off. That's not what we're going to listen to. Why? Because we've drawn a line in the sand. We're not going to listen to worldly music. We will not be defiled by it. Was that very honest of us? And we don't seem to mind 
listening to that same kind of music, the same actual songs, or watching our favorite TV show or movie. We don't seem to mind when we're walking through the grocery store and actually kind of humming along with the songs that we, we've heard so much. We don't seem to mind when we're sitting in a restaurant. He says, one thing to guard against worldliness, it's another thing to act like a Martian. Okay? And I'm not a, saying, okay, go out and learn all the worldly music and don't have any principles when it comes to worldly music, but, but should we really expect anything different from our culture that they would listen to that kind of music? And expect that they're going to just help us with our little bubble? Keep us from all of their defilement? No, they're not. So reassess your convictions. Make sure that you're drawing the line where the Bible draws the line rather than, you know, this is my tradition. I, I just don't like it. And I, I will not have it. We wonder why we are such outcasts in some cases more than we should be. Okay, Obviously, being a Christian just naturally makes us outcasts, but, but more than we should be. Remember, Paul says, I became all things to all men, so that by some means I would save some. Jesus guarded himself against worldliness. He knew where to draw the lines. And yet, what do we find him doing? Eating with Pharisees, eating with tax collectors, eating with sinners. Friends, we need to take a stand. We live in a faithless culture. Okay? We need to take a stand. We need to draw a line in the sand or else we will be assimilated into the culture. But we need to guard ourselves that we don't go too far and become like Martians, like people, what in the world are you doing? And we need to be identified with God Himself, with Christ. Go outside the camp, willing to suffer reproach for His name. And be willing to die for these things. Be willing to die where we've drawn the line. You know what? This is what God says, and I'm willing to die for it. Because if we're not willing to die, at some point, we're not going to be willing to live for anything. And know that although our faithfulness may not be rewarded like Daniel, it will be rewarded, either this life or in the next or both. But if you don't get rewarded in this life, recognize that God has not had anything ever pass by Him without His view, without seeing what's going on. He knows your faithfulness and He will reward it. And so we can stand up in the middle of a faithless culture and be true to God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that You would help us with the principles and explicit commands in the Scripture. Sometimes it's so hard for us to see how the world is actually assimilating us and squeezing us into its mold because it happens so subtly. So I pray that You would help us to recognize and, and to be people of wisdom because we are people of the book. We understand Your Word clearly and we seek to understand it more because we know that it's going to have practical application for how we live in this culture. Lord, we want to be faithful to You. We want to be true. So we pray that You'd help us in all that we do. In Jesus' name, Amen.